The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It's time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to Episode 71 of Unspoken Cancer Truths. I'm your host, Jen Cochran. I'm pleased to have with me today Alana Feuchter, Patient Insight and Advocacy Advisor for the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. Every cancer story is important, and Alana's story really highlights the importance of learning your family history and taking an active role in the management of your health based on that history. Let's jump right in and hear her story. Welcome, Alana. I'm so happy to have you here today. We were chatting yesterday over on the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition's Facebook page about exercise and the benefits of exercise, specifically for your audience in relation to ovarian cancer. And when you and I met a month or so ago, um, you were sharing your story with me. And I think it's such an important story to share. So I am really excited to have you share your journey and how you came to work as the patient insight and advocacy advisor for the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition. So welcome. Thank you so much, Jen. I will just kind of jump right in and tell you that my story actually starts with my mom. In the fall of 2012, my mom was diagnosed with what's called cancer of unknown primary, meaning that they found cancer in her lymph nodes, but by doing a biopsy, they realized that it wasn't lymphoma. So they needed to figure out how to treat her. And um, her doctors could make a reasonable assumption based on where the tumor was started, but obviously treatments are very different depending on where the tumor originated. So among the many tests, that she had was genetic testing. Now, keep in mind, my mom's family history is fraught with cancer. Her mother died at 47 of colon cancer. Her father died of prostate cancer. She had an uncle who died of colon cancer. And her maternal grandmother died of what was called women's cancer in the 1950s. I could go on and on and on with the family history, but that paints at least a little bit of a picture for you. You can see it's pretty lousy. So, Given this, it wasn't a surprise that they suggested genetic testing for her and that when it came back, she indeed had a BRCA1 mutation. So I know that some people are very uh, well aware of what the BRCA1 or 2 mutation is, but I'm just going to give a small snippet. Um, Everyone actually has the BRCA gene. It's just that most people don't have a mutation in the gene. There's a smaller population who has the mutation. If you have a mutation, it does put you at risk for certain cancers. BRCA stands for breast cancer. And the most common cancer that people know about is breast cancer, but it's not the only cancer. It also puts you at risk for ovarian cancer. And depending if you're BRCA1 or BRCA2, it puts you at risk for other other types of cancers, which could include colon cancer. It could include prostate cancer for men. Um, it can include some melanomas. It's a host, a host of other uh, pancreatic cancer for BRCA2. So, um, so it's really um, important that people know that there that it is not just a women's issue. When I say this, also I want to point out a lot of people think, oh, BRCA, that's just women. Well, first off, we know that that's not only women. That men can have some of these diseases as well. But it's not just that men can pass it on. So. So the the mutation comes from either the mother or the father. 
And it's possible that maybe your mom didn't have breast cancer or ovarian cancer or any of these other cancers, but your dad's side of the family had it. And maybe they even had so many men, you know, your dad had brothers and, and nobody knew. And now all of a sudden you're, you're being diagnosed with this. So it's really, really important to know your family history. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about um, genetic testing maybe in a, in a bit. But we'll get back to my story. So having been with my mom at all of her genetic counseling appointments, I knew, again, that my risk was 50% because it could because it could have come from her. So I elected to get tested myself. And um, I was, of course, saddened, but not at all surprised to learn that I have the same mutation that she has. Now, keep in mind that this was in 2013, and this was before Angelina Jolie came forward and made this well-known, and I was only tested for the specific mutation that my mother had, and my insurance did not cover it. So I had to pay $750 out of pocket. Now, um, it's totally different and 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 much more inclusive of, of genetic testing in a panel of tests that you're going to get as a cancer survivor or a family member of a cancer survivor. Anyway, the test did come back that I had the BRCA mutation, and I was 45 at the time. I was done having my children and um, really didn't need my girl parts anymore. So I scheduled what's called a salpingo uh, oophorectomy, and that is a removal of your ovaries and your fallopian tubes. It's different than a hysterectomy. Oftentimes, women will say, I'm having a hysterectomy, but that is removal of the uterus, which is different. And then oftentimes, you'll have the, the, the oophorectomy with the hysterectomy, but they are different. Um, we have different girl parts down there. Um, so at the time when I scheduled the, the oophorectomy, I thought that I was reducing my risk of ovarian end of breast cancer because they say that by removing the ovaries, you reduce your risk of breast cancer because it is a hormone-driven cancer, at least those who are tied to the BRCA. Um, so for me, two for one, no brainer. I will do it. Um, before my surgery, I went ahead and did any kinds of pre-ops that were required. You know, they obviously want to check your heart to make sure you're okay to put under anesthesia. But then there were some that were specific to um, having the surgery that I was having, and that was a blood test to check my CA125, which is a blood marker. And this blood marker is great for identifying a recurrence, but it is not good at identifying um, cancer in an early stage. And that's why it's not used to um, as, as, a, as a tool for early detection. Um, I also had a transvaginal ultrasound, and they looked at my um, ovaries and fallopian tubes. And at the time, they noticed something in the right tube that they called a corpus luteum, which is basically an egg leaving the um, the ovaries. And based on when I had had my last period, that made sense. I don't want to give too much of the story away, but anyway, there was something there, whether or not it was something or not. Um, anyway, at the time, I didn't question it. I just was like, great, everything's normal. Let's just get this, these out, and then I don't have to worry about cancer. So I went in and I had my uh, my surgery, but I woke up from surgery and I just had this feeling. And you know, you get these weird feelings and you don't know why, and there's no explanation for it. And I was still very groggy. And I saw my husband and my mother on the other side of the room and they came over and I looked at my husband and I said, they found cancer, didn't they? And he just, his eyes started tearing up and he just shook his head. Yes. Yes, they did. And I have to be honest, you know, most people remember that moment when they found out they had cancer. I really don't remember much about it because I was well uh, drugged at the time, <laughs> which is probably a good thing. 
except that many hours later in the middle of the night, I was in a panic because the drugs had worn off and I was trying to process, you know, oh my gosh, I have ovarian cancer, right? And, and nobody's going to say like, that's, that's, people always say that's the bad one to have. Oh, you don't want ovarian cancer. That's the bad one. You know, it's, it's only better than pancreatic cancer or brain cancer, right? Like <laughs> people will say things like that. So, you know, I was, I was people thinking say like crazy things. As <laughs> they in, in episode 70, I actually talk about how to process the crazy things that people tell yeah. us. <laughs> it, it, it is. It's, it's true. Um, so anyway, found that I have cancer. Um, and then pathology, of course, whenever you have any kind of surgery, they, they send it up to pathology to confirm. Although my doctor knew by looking at it, she, she didn't even have to, have to worry. She was like, it's definitely cancer. Um, turns out that they found a tumor that had burst through my right fallopian tube. Could it have been that corpus luteum? I don't know. My doctor still won't confirm yes or no. She, she thinks that it wasn't because the kind of cancer I had was a fast growing cancer. Um, and then pathology also confirms that I had microscopic cells growing in my left ovary. So it was it was there. Um, now, ovarian cancer does not have a reliable diagnostic tool. And so, as I said, there is no equivalent of a mammogram or a colonoscopy to identify ovarian cancer. If there was, perhaps they would have known going in that I already had cancer. But um, ovarian cancer is really only diagnosed through surgery when you have a suspected mass that maybe has been seen on an imaging test. So although my doctor was confident that she really did remove any visible tumors, as we know, there could have been a single stray cell that fell off and then would lead to possible um, regrowth in the future. So I was told I needed chemotherapy. I was considered stage 2C of ovarian cancer. Um, most patients with this diagnosis are given just traditional chemo, which is once every three months or every three weeks. I apologize. Um, but my doctor felt like I was young and otherwise healthy and wanted to give me a little bit of a different option. So she laid out two. The first was called dose dense, which is where you get chemo every week instead of every three weeks. And the idea is that you are constantly hitting the tumor. So this is another help, another tip that I did not know until I was diagnosed. Chemo only works on rapidly dividing cells when the cells are dividing. If they are not dividing, the chemo doesn't work. So that's why you have to do it multiple times, at, at, you know, over and over and over. So the idea behind the dose dense was that we would be hitting it with less of a dosage, but more frequently. So that was one option. Option two was what was called IVIP. So with uh, traditional chemo, you have a port placed in your chest, and that's where they give you your chemo. With IVIP, you have two ports. You have one put in your chest. And you have a second port put in kind of near your rib cage. And in that case, they put chemo directly into your abdominal cavity. It does not go through the bloodstream. The idea behind it is that they are basically bathing your organs in chemo. So if there's anything there, it's washing it away. And I wasn't sure which one to pick because I had gone online like everybody else does when you get diagnosed to, you know, ask questions and find information. And the IP sounded pretty harsh. And it just seemed more than I wanted. That being said, I also wanted to know that I was doing everything that I could. And at the time, that was the way that people were saying, this is, this is the latest and greatest. You, you want to do this. So I chose the IVIP. Um, what that meant is that every week I would go in on Wednesday and I would have chemo put into my um, chest port. And that would be two different drugs. 
And then I would go on Thursday and they would put one drug into my abdomen. And when I say this, you think, okay, just a little bit of chemo, but it is bags and bags. They Not only do they put the chemo, but they put in two bags of saline. They put one bag in before and a second bag after. And the reason for this is because the chemo is so toxic on your kidneys and they want to give you some hydration. So even if you went in with a flat stomach, you would leave the appointment looking like you were about five months pregnant. So I knew I had to wear stretchy pants every time because uh, this was pre-COVID. Um, but you had to wear stretchy pants because you would not be able to button your pants at the end of it. I also had to be admitted into the hospital because they couldn't do it in a lot of places. In like a traditional chemo place, they can't do it um, because it, it's not done through a pump. You have to do it through gravity. So it just hangs there. And however long it takes, it takes. And the first time it took 24 hours for that chemo to go all the way in. Um, it did get quicker um, as time went on because I, I wasn't as swollen from having the port placed and from the surgery itself. Anyway, um, one of the things I forgot to mention earlier is that I also had, after my surgery, I, I had pulmonary embolism, which means you had blood clots in your chest, in your lungs. So I, at this point, I was giving myself daily Lovenox shots. Um, plus, I had to give myself weekly shots for um, uh, blood because with the, the treatment I was having, your blood counts would drop. So you're required to give yourself another shot like a few days before treatment. So I was literally a human pincushion. I, I had bruises everywhere from all of this. But at the end of four months, I completed my chemotherapy regimen. And I, at the time, I wasn't put on a maintenance therapy because back in 2013, none existed except in clinical trials. Now there's a class of drugs called PARP that are extremely effective for those who have a BRCA mutation. And I know that these are being used in other cancers as well, including breast, including prostate, but they really started with ovarian. I'm happy to report that I have remained NED, which stands for no evidence of disease, since I finished treatment in April of 2014. With ovarian cancer, you can never say you are cancer-free because the cancer can really return at any time. It's not one of those cancers that give you the all clear after five years. Um, women have had recurrences after six months, three years, seven years, even 14 years. So I hope I am not one of them. I hope that I stay NED forever. But I think it's also important for me at this point to talk about that my mom um, is still alive today and she remains at this point an eight and a half year stage four ovarian cancer survivor. And, and lo a lot of that is due to advances that have been made since the two of us were diagnosed. So she has been on a PARP now for three years. Um, and I contribute that to um, to her still being here. Um, she has, of course, faced hurdles along the way. She's had to have multiple rounds of chemo. She's had radiation. She's had surgery. But she is still here and she is still fighting. And the two of us together like to um, kind of be a duo. And we've gone and we've talked to pharmaceutical companies and we've done articles for Good Housekeeping magazine. And, um, you know, we really do our part to, to um, spread the word. So that leads me to, you know, where I am right now and what you were saying. I really wanted to give back to my community. And so when I felt like I was in a position where I could do so, I took on the role with the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition as the patient insights and advocacy advisor about three and a half years ago. And so um, kind of brings us up to date. I guess one other thing I'd like to throw out there is that two years after I had my, um, after I finished chemotherapy, 
I did go ahead and schedule a prophylactic mastectomy because I was worried, oh my goodness, you know, everything looks good. And, um, and I know that you can do mammograms and MRIs, which I was on a schedule for every six months rotating, but I had what they called dense breasts. And there was always question about whether they're seeing things and I got tired of it. So I finally said, I'm going to go ahead and do that. So um, at this point, I like to joke, I have no of my original girl parts left. <laughs> um, but um, I think that's about it. The last thing I just want to share is that if there's anything that you take away from this discussion today, it's really knowing your family history and being your own advocate. And, um, you know, I don't know that I would be talking to you right now if that weren't the case, because my cancer certainly would have grown. It was fast growing and it would have been found at stage three or stage four, which is when ovarian cancer typically is found. And um, again, the, the PARP wasn't available at the time. So who knows? So please, everyone, really ask those hard questions of your family and take action when you can. Yeah, that is so important. My um, my mother-in-law has been going through some tests recently and she had shared her portal with my husband so that he could read the actual clinical notes. And he said, I need to get a notebook. There's more information in here than I've ever gotten out of her before. Like I, this is questions that and my husband's a thyroid cancer survivor. Um, like he's like, I keep asking questions and there's more information in here than I've ever gotten. Like, well, what the heck? I think that's another thing with, you know, the electronic medical records. A lot of this is available now and you can share this. And so, um, you know, it's important. Ask your Ask your parents, your siblings, your cousins, your grandparents. You know, it, it can be um, in the in the family anywhere. So um, it's just important to know. Yes, it's that is so so very important. And the um, the genetic testing as well has come so far. I mean, five years ago when I had mine done, it was still it was half of what yours cost. It's still costly yeah. in the grand scheme of things. Um, but my mom had hers done two years after I had mine done. So mine was five years ago. Hers was like two and a half years ago. And the doctors at the time said, what they did five years ago is pretty good. Like yeah. what they expected mine to look like and what mine looked like was not the same. And then they did even more with her. So it's definitely an area that's growing kind of in leaps and bounds. It is. And because of what I do, you know, I talk to patients a lot. There's something called a VUS, which is a variant of unknown significance. So sometimes when you get a genetic test, it will come back and it'll say, you know what, you don't have anything that we know of right now, but there's a few things that look odd. And as more people get tested, they might find that those turn into something else. And so um, we're, we're really collecting a lot more information as time goes on. And we'll know more, you know, three years from now, five years from now. Well, and that's the beauty of as we are having these tests done, like having had the testing, our doctors both feel like something in the future is going to be unearthed. And we're going to find that we do have some marker somewhere. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting, um, even in the land of other things, not cancer specific. Yeah. I am celiac and celiac 
much like ovarian cancer, unfortunately, is really challenging to mm-hmm. diagnose. I mean, there's a couple tests that they can run, but I was largely gluten free before I had any of those tests run because my celiac wasn't, you know, kind of quote unquote normal. But recently, my GI doc was like, mm, I'm not sure you actually are celiac. Can I do, there's a new test that I can do that will show if you have the markers. Right. And they're, so now they're doing even more genetic testing where they can say, you have the marker and you have these other clinical things. So it is actually likely that it is celiac versus, a, you know, a lot of us have sensitivities to things because our food sources Absolutely. have changed so much. So yeah. It's there's so many, so many amazing things happening. So stay with us. We will be back in just a moment. We're going to take a quick break and I'll be back with Alana talking about all the, the different exciting things that are going on in the research world. So stay with us. I hope you're enjoying Unspoken Cancer Truths. I help people to get moving again. And sometimes you just need to switch up the approach or find a new challenge especially when thinking about starting back after treatment or an illness. One of my goals is to help you flip the idea of exercise as something that's hard, awful, or daunting, and make it something fun, maybe even a little social. Safely, of course. The important thing is that you wanna get started and you're happy to show up for yourself And then you want to stay in the game because it feels good to move and you had fun doing it. Ready to reimagine exercise? You can email me at jennifer at fitnessdesignsolutions.com or schedule a coffee chat with me through the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning. Now back to the show. Welcome back. I'm here with Alana Foykter and we are talking about her journey being um, BRCA1, finding out that she was BRCA1 and navigating that. And I really just want to commend you because they're really brave decisions. I know that these are very challenging. It's very challenging when you know that you have this mutation and that your risk becomes exponentially higher than, you know, they say our average risk and our average risk, of course, rises as we age. But I think it was really brave of you to take those those steps and make those choices. And, and I very much feel similarly to you, like, I was not using them. It was okay that like, it was okay with me that these pieces were going to be, you know, removed. And I know that we don't all we all have different perspectives. So I want to really applaud you for that because it's really a brave choice. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, if it weren't for having had gone ahead and, and doing that prophylactically or what I thought was prophylactically, again, we don't know what the future would have bring. We know I had cancer and we know it's a fast growing cancer and it could have, have gone elsewhere, could have invaded, um, you know, organs nearby. So yes, it is, it was a good decision. I'm not going to lie. There's obviously there's, um, impacts for not having those ovaries, not going through menopause naturally. Um, there is, you know, an increased risk for bone loss and weight gain and other things that are not so joyful. But 
when I get frustrated, I just tell myself that I am still here and still really the same person. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm better without them. Absolutely. Well, you and I were talking as well. And I think that this plays into the early menopause, like the, the chemical mm-hmm. menopause, like when we come into menopause from a place of, you know, whether it's mechanical having things removed or chemical because we went through chemo um in your case a little bit of a a little bit of b there's also the brain fog and the cognitive challenges that come with that and i feel very strongly like this is a gap Mm -hmm. you mentioned having to go for heart tests right like they send us out for heart tests and they are checking our blood work and they're looking at our liver function and they're checking our kidney function but then at the end of the day like we're working through these things but it's not currently common to refer out to an oncology therapist who then can help us kind of navigate or help us recognize cuz i think that contributes a lot you talk a little bit during the break about how much you love to read. And I, I would love for you to share a little bit about that because then we were like, hmm, chicken or egg. Right. <laughs> so I am a huge reader. I love, love, love to read. Historical fiction is my favorite. And um, while I was going through chemo, you know, you spend a lot of time sitting around, getting chemo, sitting in your bed, trying to feel better. And, you know, I thought, well, the books will keep me company, but I wasn't able to read. and. I would look at a page and I would read the words and it just didn't sink in. And I would have to keep going back and saying, what, what did I just read? What did I just read? And eventually I got to the point where, you know, friends would ask, what can I do for you while I'm in treatment? And I would say, can you bring me People Magazine? Because it was lots of pictures and not many words. And it was really all I could focus on. I mean, that's all my brain could digest. And we talked about whether or not it was the chemo causing that. And then because of that, maybe um, I was feeling depressed or was I depressed because of the cancer and depression causes your brain to, you know, not act as its normal self. So was that causing me not to be able to read? I don't know. I can say now that I read all the time. Um, I'm not in chemo and hopefully I'm not depressed. Um, so, um, but yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard choice. And I think you're right. Doctors do give you referrals to everything. And I love my oncologist. I'm, I mean, I see her still. And I, I think she's fabulous. But when I was, you know, concerned about maybe depression or sadness, the, the idea was, okay, here's a pill that will help you feel better. Well, I'm already taking a lot of medications. And that wasn't what I wanted. And and I think for a lot of survivors, and, and maybe you can agree, you're so focused on, I just need to stay alive. What do I need to do to stay alive? And it's once you're done with treatment that you then start thinking about all of these other things. And I think that's when a lot more people will actually go into therapy. It's not while they're in treatment, but it's once they're out of treatment and they realize, what did I just go through? What am I, what, what does it mean from here? And that now I need help. Absolutely. And this is a theme that I think is echoed across so many of the interviews that I do with people, like, we get diagnosed. Like, it's kind of a three phase process, right? Like we get Mm -hmm. diagnosed, and that's a whole thing. And then we have our treatment, that's a whole thing. And then there's the rest, except that you get diagnosed, you go through treatment, people come out of the woodwork to support you. Doctors and nurses are like, they're on your speed dial taking your call. 
And then you get to the end and it's like, see you in three months. And you're like, oh, yeah. huh? Well, what, what if I need to call you next week? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny because you, you get so excited for that last chemo. And for those people who get to ring a bell and say, you know, my chemo's done. But there's also a feeling of being scared at that point because up until that point, you're doing something. You're actively doing something and you're hoping that it's working. But now all of a sudden you've stopped. And you're just, it's a waiting game. And that becomes very hard, I think, um, psychologically. Absolutely. I, uh, my husband got a little upset when I said, um, when I was preparing for my TED talk and I said, life gets lonelier. And he was like, what, what do you mean? And I said, well, it's just, you're overwhelmed with people and doctors Mm -hmm. and appointments and stuff. And you're taking action and you're investing energy and recovering from the action that you're taking right it's a whole thing and it's very it can be very challenging and and it's challenging in the land of being our own advocate as well and I think that that's such an important item that you brought up and and for men if you if there is a history in your family getting the test getting that genetic testing. I have a family friend whose husband, his mother has the gene. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if it's one or two, but he found a lump and it was very hard for him to get properly diagnosed. Yeah. Um, so things were much more, da- were, were later saved by the time he actually had a diagnosis. And this was someone who knew that he had a family history of BRCA. Yeah, that's really unfortunate. Um, I, one thing I do want to point out is anybody who is diagnosed with ovarian cancer, it is in the NCCN guidelines, which is, you know, the people who make the guidelines for treatment. Um, it is in their guidelines that anyone diagnosed with ovarian cancer should receive genetic testing because it is one of the cancers that has the highest rate of um, having a genetic component. So up to 25% of all ovarian cancers are genetic. And that's, I mean, you still... That's still 75% perhaps that aren't, but you know, most other cancers are nowhere near that high. I think with breast, it's maybe five or 10%, right? It's much smaller. So anybody who has had ovarian cancer should receive genetic testing. And based on those results, maybe if they come back that they have a, a mutation, then their family members should be getting tested as well. So, um, it's, it's just really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. You had mentioned um, in your, again, this is a bit of a chicken and egg situation because with pulmonary embolisms, I'd like you to talk a little bit about what you experienced with that because um, I think it was a little bit different from like kind of the classic symptoms of a pulmonary embolism and ovarian cancer is is tricky in that it can cause pulmonary embolism. So then it's like surgery can cause pulmonary embolism for anyone undergoing any kind of surgery, but then ovarian cancer is also known for that. So, yeah. So, um, I, it was, I've had my first treatment and I was waiting to have my second treatment and I was having pain in my rib cage and it felt, it, it felt more painful when I would breathe in, take a deep breath in. And of course, your doctors tell you, if you feel anything that's unusual, you know, contact us. And as a, as somebody who's never had cancer before, you don't know what is unusual or not, but it just didn't right. feel right. It just didn't feel right. 
And so I wasn't sure if I was going to call the doctor and they were just going to blow me off or if they were going to do something like this was something that they needed to act, you know, act on. And when I called them that, I, I kid you not, within like 20 minutes, they said, you need to go straight to the radiologist. We need to do, um, you know, we need to do an, uh, an exam there. And of course, I had an MRI or a CT, which showed that there was clots in that side um, of my ribcage or lungs. Um, we don't know if it was from surgery, as you said, because that is always a co- uh, possible complication of surgery. Or as you said, if it had been developing all along because I had ovarian cancer, but it, it was about, I don't know, maybe three weeks after my, can- my, my surgery. So it's hard to say. Yeah. It's, it's definitely one of those tricky, one of those tricky situations, but very much like listening to our body when that listen to your body. There were so many times where I was like, this seems weird. Is this weird? <laughs> and I think that's part of the, the, the good thing about finding a community of other women because who have been through it. You know, I didn't know a lot of other women other than my mom um, um, who had had ovarian cancer. My mother-in-law also, which is a whole other story, which I'm not going to go into right now. But um, I didn't know anybody my age. How about that? And yeah. it was it was hard. I had friends who had thyroid cancer, I had friends who had breast cancer, but you want to find somebody in your, your community and connect with them because you want to ask these questions like, well, is this normal? Is that normal? Should I be feeling this? Should I not be feeling this? So, um, you know, anybody who's going through treatment, I think, find your people. Whoever those people are, find your people because um, it, it does make it a, a little bit easier on the journey. Yes, absolutely. Um I interviewed Trevor Maxwell a while back and he has an organization called Man Up to Cancer and it's for men and it's all different kinds of cancer, but there are kind of like pocket communities within Mm -hmm. the community. Um, He's a colon cancer, stage four colon cancer. Um, But he was really finding the benefit of going to, to group therapy. And he said he was the only guy in the room. And one day, uh, uh, couple came in and the husband was recently diagnosed and the wife was like, you're staying here. (laughs) You're participating in this meeting. And having, I think having Trevor there like made the difference. And then he was like, this is something that, that is needed, like that space. So having that like people to talk to and to be able to say, anyone else having this challenge? You know, even like with HER2 positive, I was having, I was getting a treatment and I was having a symptom and I had someone come into the studio who had been, who was getting the same treatment. And she said she had a tissue at the ready and our nose would just run. Hmm. It would just start to run. And she said, I said, Oh, did your nose run? spontaneously like it doesn't stop and she said yes it's called the herceptin drip and I was like there's a name for it and she said I found a small community of people who have all experienced this but your doctor will tell you it doesn't exist and I was like okay I feel better there's people that are having this Absolutely. Absolutely. And as she said, you know, your doctor would be like, oh, no, that's that's not a a side effect. But you find other people who do have that as a side effect. So, you know, hmm, 
maybe it is really a side effect that nobody's admitting to. And a runny nose isn't a huge deal, annoying, but right. you know, not something that's going to change your your outcome. Well, and actually, as it turned out, it was a sinus infection mm. that I had had. It was a staph infection. Oh, I had gone like it started in like September and in May, I was still in treatment. And I ended up going to an ENT and she like gets out the thing and she looks and she says, oh, you have a staph infection, like run of the mill, like la la la. And I was like, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> and she's like, no, no, it's not a big deal. Like it's just, but she said, for that. she's like, it's probably just ramping up every three weeks. Like you have your treatment, it starts to get better, then it ramps back up and then it gets better and then it ramps back up. And she was like, nope, it's okay. We'll get you on treatment for the rest of your treatment. No problem. Goodness. But I was like, oh, guess I should have come here sooner. <laughs> crazy. Oh, goodness. Crazy, crazy. So you were mentioning um, the PARP inhibitor. Um, and I thought that was so interesting. And it's also one of the reasons that organizations like the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition and Leukemia Lymphoma Society, these organizations that are contributing to the research and contributing to the generation of these new life-saving drugs. I was surprised to learn recently, like in the land of HER2 positive, there are also colon cancers that are HER2 positive, slightly terrifying. But there are now more drugs um, right. that are available. And and that's just in the last five years. Like the leaps and bounds that we are making is phenomenal. Yeah, I think you hear a lot about personalized medicine and what does that mean? And I think we're just on the cusp of that. Um, you know, in, in the ovarian cancer space, you can have genetic testing, which means that you have, let's say, if you find a mutation of BRCA1 or 2 mutation, it's in every cell of your body. It is everywhere. Any cell you would take, you would have it. Interestingly, you can take a tumor. You can have your tumor tested, which is separate. Um, and, and the tumor itself might have a mutation, a BRCA mutation. But you personally do not have a, a BRCA mutation. And what we're, they're finding is that people who have that mutation in their tumor only also respond to these same drugs. So I think it's coming at this, you know, getting, get knowing more about your tumor, knowing more about your own genetics and combining that to, to treat you as an individual, which may be very different than the person sitting next to you in treatment who has the same diagnosis, but a different chemical makeup in their body. Yes, that is amazing. And I would love for you to just touch on BRCA because you talked about that everyone has the right. BRCA gene. So I would love for you to just talk about the difference between BRCA and then a mutation of BRCA. Sure. So um, if you have a BRCA, okay, everybody has a BRCA gene. But if you have the mutation, it means that your body isn't able to stop the cells from dividing. So if you have a cancer, your body should know if, if your if your BRCA gene is working correctly, it knows to, to to not allow these cells to continue to grow. If you have the mutation, it will continue to grow and it grows unchecked because your body is unable to do that. 
when you take a drug like the PARP, which is one of those um, more personalized medicines, it allows you to keep the cancer cells from repairing the damaged DNA, and therefore it causes them to die. Yeah, that is fan. That is fantastic. I'm all. And again, I think I said this before, but you know, you're talking about drugs having the HER2 positive and, and other cancers. You know, what they're finding is that you know. Again, the BRCA could be a mutation in every cell of your body, a genetic mutation. It can also be a somatic mutation, which means it's only in the tumor. And so now they're using the PARP in things like prostate cancer, in breast cancer. And um, it's, you know, I think the same will happen. I think there will be drugs that perhaps are being used in colon cancer that someday will be used in an ovarian cancer um, if they have the same makeup, if there's something that's similar between them. And I think that's where the future of medicine is probably going. Yes, absolutely. Like Optiva was being used in lung cancer. It's also mm-hmm. being used to treat stage four colon cancer right. um, for hot tumors. Um, right. People who have hot tumors, Optiva is amazing. Um, I have a friend who was very, very, very ill. Her prognosis was very challenging and she got into an Optiva trial and it was a, a miracle drug. So like, as we have more of these targeted treatments and these targeted therapies, it just really opens up the landscape mm-hmm. for more survivors. And then we're navigating this post-treatment yeah. survivorship world. So one thing I just want to throw out there, just because you brought it up with the, uh, your friend went on an Optivo trial. Um, one of the things that we're working on as an organization is really to educate people about trials. I think people, when you hear trial, you'll think, oh, that they don't have any more options left. That's it. And oftentimes that might be the case. Like you have run out of options. But a lot of times it's just somebody who wants to, you know, try something. And it's the only way that we're going to advance the science. If people don't, the only reason that we know that there's a PARP inhibitor, that there's Optivo, that there's, you know, all these other drugs is because somebody before you tested them. So um, I want to encourage people to think about trials um, as a possibility. It can be, you know, in, in early stages of your diagnosis. Of course, it can be in late stages too, but um, there's different stages of, tri- you know, phases of the trial, whether they're just trying a drug, whether they're maybe trying a drug you're already on with a combination. So um, I encourage everyone to consider a, a trial if there's, you know, if it works for you. Yeah, it's, it's so important. So, so very important. Because the more people that are participating, the more information exactly right able to gather as well. Yep. And as you were saying, there's so much overlap, I think something like 80% of the medications that and the treatment solutions that the Leukemia Lymphoma Society has mm-hmm. helped to fund to change the landscape of, of blood cancers and lymphomas. About 80% of those drugs are now being used to treat other yep. types of cancers. So it's, it's such a valuable, important component to... And one of the things I love about the um, National Ovarian Cancer Coalition's website is you have a whole like there's a link to all the trials that are going on and like what the findings have been and who's recruiting and 
that's a really valuable tool because a lot of trials as well, there's not just drug trials. There are also, there's also research where people are looking for like quality of life indicators and like they're doing the research to put the backing behind, hey, we need to add therapy into Mm -hmm. a well-rounded treatment program. Like even if someone doesn't need it, like going for one appointment can be really beneficial. Absolutely. I, I agree wholeheartedly. So there's, there's lots of, lots of, lots and lots of things out there that we can contribute to in the land of making it easier for the next people that come That's along. Right. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, the medical community is, is finding that, oh, we have a lot of people. We're doing a great job. Like we're doing a great job treating people. So now we have a lot of people moving into survivorship. That's right. With challenges that we weren't really aware of when people, when there right. weren't as many survivors. That's right. That's right. If there's more side effects that you have to deal with and emotional toll and things like that. So yeah, I think we'll just continue to, to learn more. Yes. So I would love to just round out with asking, have some ideas of some of your silver linings. Um, (laughs) I would love to know, like, what, if you had to point to a silver lining in regard to your journey. So I'm one of those people who who does see the silver lining in most things. And so I could come up with lots. I could spend the the next hour talking about it. It's hard to pick just one. If I have to, this is what I'm going to say, and, and we didn't even touch upon this, so I'm throwing this out there <laughs> without even giving you any fair warning. But um, no worries. I think cancer gives you the, it, it, it helps clarify what is important and what's not important and who is important and who is not important. And I'll be honest, before I had cancer, I have three kids. I would always say yes to everything. You need me in the classroom? Okay, yes. Somebody needs me to drive their kids somewhere? Yes. Okay, I will do this. Yes. And I never stopped and thought about me or what I needed. And cancer gave me the chutzpah to just say, you know what? I'm going to do what I want. And my husband and I, even today, like we will, you know, we, we might get invited somewhere and we're like, nah, is it an obligation or do we really want to go? If we really want to go, we're going to go. But if it's an obligation, I now can say no. And that was something that if you had asked me before, I, I I just couldn't. I wasn't able to do that. So to me, that's a gift because now I see the value of the time that I want to spend with the people that I want to spend it with, doing the things I want to be doing. Yes. I love that. That is so important. So thank you so much for sharing that. That is a hundred percent. And it's one of the, it's also one of those things that I hear. Yeah. Like we really get clear on what we want to do and yeah, you get clear and you recognize what's important and what's not important. And um, you and I both live in the Northern Virginia area and I feel like we live in a, a very high stress area. And I think sometimes because of that, people lose focus of what is important. And sometimes you just need to take a breath and be like, okay, this isn't really that important. This is not, this is not cancer. This is not life or death. And so why are we making this into a big thing when it really doesn't need to be? 
Yes. So true. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. The time goes by so fast. It does. (laughs) Yes, it does. Well, thank you so much for having me. And um, I look forward to more opportunities in the future. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you to Alana for sharing her story today. I hope you learned something new or perhaps saw your story in parts of hers. I know I did on both fronts. That's our episode for this week. Come on over to the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning, where you can connect with me and other past guests and group members. Knowing there are others with similar experiences helps us know that we're not alone. There's a community of people with similar and diverse experiences waiting to meet you because surviving really is just the beginning. Thanks for listening and have a great week.